Hello and welcome to the Jazz Jam Podcast. I'm your host, Dwayne Gunnels, joined by my co-host, Max Levy. And on today's episode, we're actually getting into a listener-submitted album, one that he said was super underrated and has some musicians, some French musicians that... Honestly, I don't think Max or I had really checked out all that much, so super excited to, to get into this one today. Max, how are you feeling about venturing out and getting into this this listener-recommended album today? Honestly, I'm feeling great. I think this is definitely an album worth checking out. There's some really cool arrangement on it, some great tunes, some timeless classics that are included in the set list on this record. It's a mixture of American musicians and French musicians um there has been classically um or we'll say traditionally a presence of french influence in a lot of jazz music and so this is one example of that and so there's a lot to discuss and and we love getting listener album recommendations like this one yeah yeah so we're super happy to be able to check this one out and especially one that's not like super run-of-the-mill or like super mainstream this is kind of one from the you know, kind of far back on the on the, the record shelf here. And the, the title of the album is Afternoon in Paris by John Lewis and Sasha Distel. Um, and it was recorded in 1956. So, you know, during the, the bop era and kind of the transition into the, the hard bop era. But before we get into the album itself, we're going to get into our jazz question of the week. And this week, we kind of have a little bit different of a jazz question. We're not going to ask each other a jazz question, or we're not. I'm not going to ask one to Max. Um, what we're going to do this week is we're going to ask the listeners, we're going to ask you guys a jazz question of the week, and we want you to send us your answers. The best way to do that, there are two really good ways to do it. The best way is honestly to DM us on Instagram at the Jazz Jam Podcast on Instagram. That's the best way to do it. But also the link to the email is in the bio so for this episode. And the email is the Jazz Jam Podcast at gmail.com for some people who prefer to use Gmail or email instead of of Instagram. So those are two great ways to reach out to us. And one thing that we're actually going to do, um, which is fun, is we're going to do an album giveaway. So we're going to give away an LP a record to a random listener who submits. So everyone who submits their their answer to the question, we're going to take them all and we're going to draw a random listener and we're going to do an album giveaway. And that's going to consist of we'll pick out I'll pick out some things from uh, either Max or Mai's collection and we'll give you some options as to what album you want us to send you. But we're going to send a, an LP out to a, a listener who responds to the question. And Max, what is what is this question that we we're looking for the answer to today? Well, it's sort of a subject a subjective question we we're really just interested in in unique answers or or we want to be surprised by what you say so the question is the following what is the most underrated jazz album of all time and that may be a loaded question but it's also um an interesting one because i think we all have sort of our own perspective on what that answer could be um and maybe you know from the listener that gave us uh this recommendation afternoon in paris this could maybe qualify in that category as an underrated jazz album that uh this particular listener may have you know wanted to give as an answer to this question so we're interested in what you have to say and we'll you'll we'll be put in a uh, random drawing and we'll send you an album for uh for for sending that question in yeah, for sure. And yeah, I think this question kind of stems from this listener submission. Uh, he kind of he reached out to us on Instagram and said that 
this was an album that he feels like doesn't get as much love as maybe it deserves. So we were happy to check it out on the podcast since I don't think Max or I had, had listened to it before. Um, definitely some players we're familiar with, some guys who I don't think many people are going to be familiar with at all, but some surprising um some surprising players on this album that really draw our attention. So, Max, let's get into the album itself. So, definitely send your responses to that question. What is the most underrated jazz album of all time? And if you want to send a brief reason why or anything, or if you just want to send the name of the album, whatever you want to do, that's going to get you entered in the giveaway. But we'd love to hear why as well if you want to send that in. Absolutely. The the more information, the merrier. Again, Gmail. Uh, the Jazz Jam podcast at gmail.com. You can contact us through the website. And of course, the Instagram DMs are always open. <laughs> so, this album, Afternoon in Paris by John Lewis and Sasha Distel, was recorded on December 4th and December 7th, 1956, in Paris, France. So, this recording taking place in France. And it gives us that French influence we were getting at earlier. It was released in 1957 by Atlantic Records. Atlantic Records found uh, founded in October of 1947 by Ahmet Erdogan and Herb, Herb Abramson. And it became one of the most important record labels during its first 20 years in operation. They specialized in jazz, R&B, and soul. If you don't know, Aretha Franklin, Otis Redding are, are two just prominent members of the Atlantic Records family. And um, it was soon after its first 20 years in operation bought as a a subsidiary of Warner Brothers Music in 1967. And they sort of expanded their catalog to include rock and pop music. So there's an array of musicians and artists found um, that can be found on Atlantic Records. Again, this is a part American, part French group of musicians. And all in all, I think it creates an above average swing and bop oriented recording. There's hints of the French influence on the involvement in jazz music. When we think about that influence, we think of tunes like La Vie and Rose. Also, there's the gypsy jazz style, which is um, sort of stylistic in sort of the the French and European guitar playing that occurs a lot in, in sort of French style of jazz. And oftentimes there are French lyrics uh, that are sung on tunes like Beyond the Sea and other songs that have become sort of acquainted in the uh, French jazz tradition um, along the way. So you, there's this whole mix of American and, and French musicianship on display at varying times in the history of jazz music. And so this is one example of that. And oftentimes when American artists would play in Europe, they would often be backed up by um, a rhythm section made up of players from Paris or other parts of Europe. So a lot of intermingling of European and American musicians in the history of jazz. And this is one example of that. Yeah. And I think this is one of our first introductions into kind of the European jazz scene. We'll definitely get into some, some Enhop, um, who's a bassist who played with Oscar Peterson, but this is probably our really big first introduction into a kind of the European jazz scene, which there, you know, is a lot of history there and, you know, definitely in France and different other parts, especially in some of the, um, like Denmark and those areas up in Northern Europe as well. Absolutely. Uh, you know, around the mid 1950s or so, there were a number of American jazz players who moved and became expatriates and they moved to Europe 
to find consistent work as as gigging jazz musicians because the scene had turned from jazz into rock and so the gigging opportunities were diminished by the mid to late 1950s so a number of players like ben webster don bias um, dexter gordon it's you know phenomenal straight ahead jazz players moved over there and um became well known in those scenes and i know ben webster the great saxophonist in particular is uh buried um over in europe and and a lot of his you know later playing is recorded um with alongside musicians from europe and so there's just that expatriate movement that occurs in this music around this time of this recording you know this coming from 1956 1957 um so this is just another example of of that sort of intermingling again yeah for sure so definitely important to get into the history and we'll get more into the european history as well but let's get into the personnel on the album first up we have an american musician john lewis the pianist um he was a pianist, composer, and arranger born to a musical family in Illinois in 1920. His mom was a singer who passed away when he was four years old, and he moved to live with some other relatives. He began learning the piano at the age of seven and then attended the University of New Mexico, studying both anthropology and music. And he found out that anthropology did not pay so well, so he focused on his music, which, as we know with jazz history, I mean, not always the most lucrative option either. <laughs> no, but if your picks are anthropology, which doesn't pay well, and music, which doesn't pay well, you might as well do what you love, which is the music. Exactly. So I you know, I applaud him for making that decision. Yeah, we can kind of yeah relate to that for sure. Um, but then he moved to New York in 1945 after serving in the military, where well, where he got to play with drummer Kenny Clark, who's on this album. And then he soon got around to playing with Dizzy Gillespie and Miles Davis before forming the Modern Jazz Quartet, which is his real claim to fame, is playing in that group um, in 1952 with the vibraphonist Milt Jackson, who's great, who we'll get into to at some point on this album um there's a really good oscar peterson and mill jackson record we'll have to do that one at some point um but they created sort of their own style of of jazz performance combining elements of classical music as well as other genres and they were a group until 1974 and they would come together to perform tours occasionally and john also worked as an educator more often after the group disbanded and he continued to teach into the into late in his life and he passed in 2001 due to a battle with prostate cancer but lived a, a relatively long life 81 years old and definitely um an educator in the music yeah he's a prominent figure if you don't know john lewis familiarize yourself with him um he's got a very unique style and approach yeah. And of course, the Modern Jazz Quartet, one of the ultimate groups in this music. He's paired alongside guitarist Sasha Distel on this record. Sasha is a French or was a French guitarist, vocalist, and composer born in Paris in 1933. His uncle was the famed band leader Ray Ventura, who helped popularize jazz in France. Sasha began playing piano and then switched to guitar after settling in Paris. He worked with the greats such as Slide Hampton, Barney Kessel, Barney Whelan, which is on this album, who is on this album, and so many more. And he's also known for a very popular cover of Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. And a few of his compositions have become jazz standards, including the tune called The Good Life. 
He was also known as sort of a womanizer. When he passed in 2004 due to cancer, his wife had seemingly publicly suggested that she knew that he had been sleeping around during their marriage, despite his public denial of doing such bad things. <laughs> and so there's this, there's an interesting uh, relationship there between Sasha and his wife. And, and apparently he was sleeping around and uh, kind of a, kind of a guy who was, who was always on the scene. And um, he's just one of the eclectic characters you'll come across in this music. Yeah, and he sang not only he was a singer as well and did not only jazz but did some like rock and different stuff and also did some acting as well. So just kind of one of those those like super talented all around guys, not only on the guitar but in in some other ventures as well. And then he uh yeah, he reminds me of people that were like in the rap pack, you know, Frank yeah. Sinatra, yep. Dean Martin um joey bishop all those guys who could do multiple talent who had multiple skills and talents and could do multiple things he kind so. of has that look to him as well if you look up a picture of him he looks very much like some of those guys like dean martin or, or frank sinatra yeah exactly exactly and then we get the great tenor saxophonist barney whelan on this record which we alluded to earlier I had not heard much of Barney, but I am pleasantly surprised. I love what Barney does on this album. He's a saxophonist and composer born in Nice, France in 1937. He began performing in clubs before getting the chance to work with the great Miles Davis in 1957 on a movie soundtrack. And he soon worked a lot as a composer writing other movie soundtracks himself into the late mid to late 1990s he worked with both rock and jazz groups until his passing in 1996 from cancer so barney willen a great player and he's well represented here and doing the math if he was born in 1937 and this is recorded in 56 he's only 19 years old right On this i think record. you're right Jeez. i think you're right Man, yeah. that, I, that, that just came to me. I was just like, man, 37. I was like, that's kind of later than some of these other guys. So, yeah, only 19 yeah. years old when they record this album. That's crazy. He's And he's killing. Um, super swinging. Although, you know, there's a lot of that going on. Sonny Rollins was pretty young when, when he started recording. So you'll, you'll see that, especially from saxophone players at this time. But, um, yeah, you're right. That's a good point to make. He was barely 20 if that yeah yeah for sure and then we get into another french musician on the recording who is uh pierre michelet he does the bass on tracks one two three so this we kind of get most of the same group except for the bassist and the drummer switch out from the first three tracks to the last three tracks so on the first three tracks we get pierre michelet on the bass um he's a, a french bassist as i alluded to born in paris in 1928 and he played and recorded with the likes of Rex Stewart, Kenny Clark, Dexter Gordon, Don Bias, Bud Powell, and Zoot Sims. He also appeared in the film Around Midnight, um, which features Dexter Gordon. We've talked about that film before on the podcast. And Pierre passed of Alzheimer's in 2005. Yeah, so, you know, different, different ailments, cancer, Alzheimer's that affect these cats um, towards the end of their life as they do to uh, many other people. And then also the other bass player who is well known in the history of jazz, Percy Heath is on tracks four through six. Percy born in Wilmington, North Carolina, where Dwayne Gunnels is sitting right at this very moment. Right now. 
<laughs> can you feel Percy's presence? I can. I very much can, especially the Heaths in general. I know the Heath brothers, you know, they're they're more or less a jazz dynasty. Um, so Percy Heath among those three brothers born in Wilmington, North Carolina in 1923. He's often noted noted also for being a key member of the modern jazz quartet. So there's that connection between Percy and John Lewis on this album. Uh, in addition, to, he played with Miles Davis, Thelonious Monk, Bird, Wes Montgomery, so many more. And he also produced a lot of music with his fellow Heath brothers, Jimmy Heath, the sax player, and Al Tootie Heath, the drummer. And unfortunately, Percy Heath passed away in 2005 from bone cancer. So an array of cancers here from, from these cats. Um, and then on tracks one through th- three, we also get gr- the great drummer, Connie Kay. Yeah, I just want um, a quick side note. You mentioned how the Heath brothers are from Wilmington. Jimmy Heath, the Jimmy Heath played the drums, sax, sax. Wait, which one taught at UNCW? Was it Percy then? Well, I don't know about taught there. Uh, I I saw Jimmy Heath do a master class at UNCW. Um, one of them uh, taught it at UNCW for a number of years. I wouldn't know about that. I, I would assume maybe Tootie Heath, but okay. um, I always I thought it was yeah. Jimmy Heath. But then I was like, "Wait, Tootie's the drummer," and I think it was. You might be thinking of Joe Chambers. Oh, maybe I'm thinking of Joe. Oh, yeah. yeah. The Heath did math. I'm thinking of Joe Chambers for some reason. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah, Joe Chambers, a great drummer and percussionist who did teach at UNC uh, Wilmington um, for a few years in their music department. Who's you know another legend of the music. Yeah, but they, uh, yeah, the Heath brothers didn't teach there, but they were born there and then they grew up in the Philadelphia area and were gigging in Philly and then in New York and then expanded from there. So, yeah, the Heath brothers definitely should be on your radar and we'll definitely get into them at some point on the podcast. And then we get two great drummers, the great Connie K, Conrad Kiernan. Born in 1927, self-taught as a drummer. He started playing in the Los Angeles area in 1940 or so, the 1940s. He recorded with Lester Young, Miles Davis, and so many more, in addition to recording a number of R&B sessions for Atlantic Records before becoming a permanent member of the Modern Jazz Quartet in 1955. He was known for incorporating other percussive instruments into his drum kit, and he passed in 1994. He never got the chance to record an album as a leader, and I kind of wonder what that would sound like. It would have been nice to get a Connie K-led album at some point in the music. Yeah, that's interesting. They never got to do one as a leader, and he passed away the year that, that I was born, so that's that's interesting as, as well. Um, but then we yeah. get uh, Kenny Clark on drums on the last three tracks on the album, uh, Kenny Clark was born in 1914 in Pittsburgh, and he learned the drums at the age of eight. So another young musician. He was a professional musician, professional drummer by 17, like we said, young as some of these other cats. And he moved to New York in 1935 and helped the birth of the bebop mu- movement. He pioneered the use of the ride cymbal to keep time rather than the hi-hat and used the bass drum in new and different ways. And he really split his time between New York and Paris before permanently settling in Paris and performing there until his his death in 1985 from a heart attack. So that's, you know, one of the reasons we get Kenny Clark on this album is he 
kind of became one of those expatriate Paris musicians, even though he's not French, he was in Paris at the time and for, you know, a long time throughout history. Yeah, that's right. So he he's one of those prime examples as as to what I was getting at earlier with the movement of American musicians to Europe for uh, consistent work. And they got, you know, a lot of opportunities to in doing that. And, and sometimes I think Kenny Clark is just a tad bit not underrated, but maybe not as um not as admired or referred to when people are thinking about the history of jazz drumming as he should be. And part of that may be due to his movement to Europe as one of those expatriates. I feel like maybe if he stuck it out and, and stayed in America, um, his name would be more highly well regarded and re- and referred to when when thinking about the history of, of jazz music and jazz drumming in particular yeah and i definitely agree with what max is saying there we kind of talked about underrated underrated albums i think a future question could be underrated players and i think that definitely kenny clark is one of those guys and i i, I feel like a lot of the recordings you know blue note recordings and other you know prestige and all the labels most of the recordings that we know well in the history are coming out of the U.S. So a lot of the albums, the you know, the foundational albums that we think about are Blue Note and other label companies founded in the U.S. and based in the U.S., which Kenny Clark maybe wasn't playing on because he was in Paris, but still one of the guys who's just super, super foundational in the music and in the movement but moved over to europe and didn't record as much on those labels as maybe some other guys yeah and ultimately he is the bebop drummer the kenny clark is that drummer um also the other drummer in the bebop movement would be roy haynes and also max roach so to me those three kenny clark roy haynes max roach that's where you get bebop in terms of jazz drumming yeah. and so you know kenny clark is an essential uh guy in that and kluke was his name was a nickname of his so kluke clark kenny clark um sort of a, an alliterative uh, uh nickname and it, it came from the the sound you know you were getting at he kind of changed the way certain drummers would emphasize different parts of the drum set and so the sound kluke mop is kind of what you would get from when he would uh, hit certain things in the drum set. And so that's where that nickname also comes from, is Kluke, um, from the sound he was getting from the way he was hitting certain drums at different times. Yeah, that's a really, really cool nickname and an interesting backstory to that one. Max, why don't we get into the actual album itself with the, the first track on the album? What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. We get the great standard, I Cover the Waterfront, as the first track on the album. It's a 1933 pop song turned into a jazz standard over time, composed by the great Johnny Green, who was a singer, uh, songwriter, conductor, pianist, arranger, who lived from 1908 to 1989. He wrote a lot of music for film, and his songs, Out of Nowhere and Body and Soul, are commonly covered jazz tunes as well. This is an AABA form, and it's usually a ballad. We get solo piano introduction here from John Lewis. There's a nice linear movement with chordal interplay. He seems to be playing a lot at a lighter touch to me. He's not too heavy. And there's a lot of mid-range of the piano that's used. And then after all that, we get bass and guitar to enter in and play alongside him. And I think the tempo solidifies as it goes. And so the bass time feel eventually locks into place prior to Connie Kay entering in on the drum set. And I love the development musically of how that occurs. 
The piano also adds some pads behind the guitar melody. So Sasha's playing the head on this one on the guitar while the bass continues a two fill until a quarter note pulse is played by the 250 mark, which signifies the guitar solo. And so that the uh, the movement from the two fill into the quarter note is the distinction that that determines the head versus the solos. Um, and I think the guitar solo is pretty nice. There's a multitude of single line movements played and his Bob sensibilities are quite present. You know, if you can play Bob, you can pretty much do anything else. And so one thing I wasn't expecting was the amount of Bob lines that Sasha Distel uses in his playing. Um, and that's evident on this very first solo from I, uh, this, the, the standard I cover the waterfront. Um, there's also some blues playing towards the end of a solo, which really swings and works to emphasize the groove in the pocket. And the other cool thing about this is the saxophone solo. We get a double time feel that's alluded to by the drums. And Barney Whelan on saxophone is really swinging. He's got some great lines, an awesome feel. His sound reminds me a little bit of the great Johnny Griffin in certain parts of his range. And I'm really digging his in-the-pocket approach here. I want us to listen to some of that together. Here's a bit of Barney Whelan's saxophone solo. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Just digging into that that swing idea there, like just yeah, like Ben he, Webster kind of Coleman Hawkins. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's very Coleman Hawkins the way he's digging in there. Um, great connection there, Dwayne. I just really am surprised pleasantly by what Barney Whelan is delivering in his solo. And one interesting thing to keep track of is what happens after the sax solo. And Barney kind of keeps soloing into what seems like uh, a transition into a bass solo. And we kind of get this thing where we're getting both saxophone and bass soloing at the same time. And I wonder if this is intentional or if they just went with it and this is what happened. Um, here's a taste of what's going on there when that occurs. I want us to check it out together. Yeah, it's it's a little unclear to me. It's like it, it it's there's parts where it wants to go kind of back and forth, and then there's parts where it just sort of sonically clusters, and and they kind of are just they're not necessarily interacting with each other, but they are. And um, I was just a little confused. Do they want that to happen? Is that a, a collective improvisation moment, um, or did it did they just go with it in the moment and they just wanted to see what would happen? Yeah, I kind of I kind of dig it a little bit. Um I feel like it's it's probably intentional, but I can see where Max is saying they're not really like playing off of each other all that much. They're kind of just playing doing their own thing at the same time, which is kind of cool. I I kind of dig what's going on there, and they're definitely both swinging, so just an interesting little feature there and it's interesting to note. Yeah, like was it intentional or was it just like 
they didn't know when they were going to transition, so Barney just kind of kept playing, and that's what it turned into or not. Right. It kind of alludes to early jazz where you would get collective improv from clarinet, trombone, and trumpet all happening at once. But within that collective improv, each instrument sort of had a role and a way of interacting with one another, where which is pretty well defined in that history of of uh you know trad jazz or the new orleans style here it's a little unclear to me and and i to me that deserves just a little bit of a demerit um if we were going to give it a point system which i don't want to do but i'm just saying i i don't know and and maybe that's maybe that's intentional maybe it's not yeah for sure um and then one thing that stands out to me about this track is just really Barney Whelan and his swing feel. I mean, we kind of listened to it a little bit there, but it's just, it really, really stood, it almost slapped me in the face on this first track is just how swinging Barney, Barney Whelan is. So definitely it gets me excited to kind of listen to more of what he's got to offer further into the album. But, you know, we get that right off the bat here. Absolutely. Barney Whelan is wheeling and dealing. <laughs> um, and then after that sort of collective improv, the, the solo piano comes back in and it's pretty open. And so he's kind of starting, he's starting ending the tune how he started. Um, and then they end with just a final piano chord. And I don't know, this is one thing I question with this album is what it, this keeps happening where the rhythm section will end the tune and there's no saxophone on the ending, but there was a saxophone solo and maybe the saxophone did some of the head, not on this track, but in others we'll see later on. I, I don't know. I, I kind of wish maybe the saxophone was included in some of these endings more than it is. Um, so that's, that's just a personal quandary I'll have with it. Yeah, I feel like it, they definitely arrange these tunes in kind of an interesting way. We get a lot of kind of, the John Lewis intro, John Lewis outro, or like a John Lewis intro, and then just the rhythm section on the ending, or even sometimes the heads. You don't, we don't get as many kind of straight ahead heads where you think of just like a walking bass line or like with the saxophone playing the head. We get some different ways, some different approaches, different ideas on the, the melodies, and especially on the endings as well. They seem to be. Um, a little bit more focused around John Lewis and the color of his playing sometimes than necessarily like having the whole band play together and end it with a bang. I think you're right. It comes from the influence of John Lewis's arranging tendencies mixed with, I think, maybe the French tinge that's present on this album. And maybe there's some things that French jazz musicians like to do maybe at this time. And that's what they're including here as well. Um, as and, and, and a lot of it is John Lewis just trying to reimagine different ways of arranging melodies and intros and outros, which is evident from his work with the modern jazz quartet, one of the things he liked to do. So that's here as well. Yeah, for sure. And then we get another standard that has an, an interesting arrangement to it in the second track with Dear Old Stockholm. Um, this is a like a a Swedish tune that was written um, in eighteen twenty two. So written a long time ago. Um, I won't even try to pronounce the the guy's name who wrote it because I will mess it up badly. If Max <laughs> wants to give it a go, he's well mo like more than welcome to try to get it. No, no, thank okay. you. Okay, all I, right. Uh, Ander I Anders is Anders Frixel. We'll go with that. 
Yeah, it's something like that. Yeah. yeah. So, but it's um, it's cool because it has origins in Europe, but then is really well known for the English-speaking world uh, versions by jazz artists such as as Stan Getz, Miles Davis, and um, some others, Joe, uh, Paul Chambers, and John Coltrane as well. So there are, are many, many jazz versions of this tune, but a tune that comes from not necessarily even the American songbook comes from Europe, which is super interesting. And go ahead, Max. I was just going to say, Miles Davis's version is one of the go-to versions of Dear Old Stockholm. Yep. And um, when you when you see this tune, you know, listed in the apps, or you might find a lead sheet of it, it'll just say traditional at the top. It may not even include the composer um, mm-hmm. or the arranger or whatever. It'll just say traditional song. Um, so that's one thing about this tune you'll see too. Yeah, I saw that when I was looking at the chart actually. And they do a pretty interesting arrangement of this tune. It kind of starts out right at the beginning and the way that they do the melody, we kind of alluded to this. It's this like call in response from the piano, the sax and the guitar doing the melody. And then there's also some bowed bass in the melody, which is is pretty cool too. Um definitely a unique unique way to to approach this song. I thought this arrangement of the head kind of remi- kind of reminded me of the term which may or may not be a true statement uh, or a, or a true term in music but it re- reminded me or, or th- made me think of jazz chamber music. Oh That's, yeah. I'm kind of getting jazz chamber music with the arrangement of the head on this one. Yeah, there definitely is like a lot of kind of classical influences although it's like not it's like in the arranging a lot of times and we definitely get it here. Um, you don't get your typical swung, like swing straight ahead melody with the rhythm section. There's no like saxophone over the rhythm section. So let's, let's take a listen and kind of hear what's going on. You can hear what we're talking about here instead of us just, just uh, describing it to you. So let's listen to the melody here. Yeah, and then they go just straight into like a, a the swing saxophone solo. So that's that's the melody. That's how they play the entire melody. We definitely get some kind of classical influence with kind of the bowed bass feel. That's more of a classical sound than it is a jazz sound. We know that it com- it does come out in jazz fairly often, but the way that it's happening there with the melody, it's just it's very interesting. It very like Max said, kind of jazz chamber music almost. If that's that's not really a thing, but that's what it sounds like. It is now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So yeah, another interesting take on on the melody there. But then we get into Barney Whelan's solo, and it is just his sound is very forward and hard swinging, in my opinion. Um, it's like this hard swinging approach, and he has some really nice lines, and his feel is just so good. That's one thing that stands out to me is his feel and the way that he plays things always just feels really good to me. And his sound is just kind of right in your face a lot of times. 
I think his solo is so swinging. He digs in at times, you know, unexpectedly. Uh, I love his tone, his vibrato. He is my kind of saxophone player. I want us to check out a little bit of a snippet of his solo. I want people to listen for his impeccable phrasing, his use of quotes, some really nice cadential playing that works to bring awareness to the movement of playing from one section to the next, where you obviously indicate the ending of an A section into a bridge. His ideas are also always really feeling good and on point. So let's listen to a bit of that together. Um, This coming from his solo from 121 to about 147. man yeah that phrasing is just so good like and he gives us so much like right there and it's just it feels he gives us so many different ideas but feels so fluid yeah it's fluid impeccable phrasing quotes he quoted the uh the carmen uh lick right there uh towards the beginning of a solo and beginning of that snippet of the solo and um just all in all just great playing from barney whelan he he really adds a lot to this album yeah for sure and then after the the barney whelan solo we get a a sasha distal solo and there's just a really nice mixture of of blues and bop lines as well as in the pocket motifs and ideas so just really tasteful playing here from some from sasha and then we get into John Lewis's piano solo when he really starts out with some nice bop lines. And then one thing that, that John Lewis does really well is just a really nice use of space and repetition. And I kind of want to hear um, hear a little bit of an example of kind of all of those things, the space, the repetition, and the bop line. So we're going to listen to a, a portion of his solo here. As soon as I get it queued up. <laughs> Wake we, up, Dwayne. We need a producer. I mean, it's a lot to do. Here we go. You ready? I'm ready. Oh. Ah. Yeah, so we kind of get a mix of, of all of it there. The the we start out with a good amount of space and then really gets repetitive before kind of getting into the those lines. So just giving us a lot from, from John Lewis there. Absolutely. And and he's interesting to listen to at those moments. Um because he's really known as as a really top arranger and and a cat that brings in influences of other music, but when he's just straight ahead it's it's a treat to listen to and check that out because um, that's not exactly what he's always known for, and, but that's a great moment there. And there's others later on in the album too from John Lewis. Yeah, and then after the the John Lewis solo, they go into this this cool trade four section, and they're trading between the sax, the guitar, and the piano. And that section is pretty cool. They each take four bars, and they do that before going back into that that melody that we played, that kind of call and response jazz chamber music kind of melody. And yeah, I think that all in all, this this arrangement is just really cool of this tune. I've never heard it 
arranged in this way specifically. And Barney's solo really stands out to me here. Just his his feel, his phrasing. Um, yeah, it's just right in your face, and it's hard not to to be you know to pay attention to. Yeah, it's it, he swings hard, and he again he just adds so much in that tune and on others on this album. Uh, we get the third track on the album, the title track called "Afternoon in Paris." This is an original tune from John Lewis written in 1949. This is kind of one of his most famous compositions. It's a 32 bar AABA form. And there's a kind of a bouncy feel during the head on this one. The saxophone is also filling in spaces during the melody. And it's, it's kind of out of the, the main frame. It's a bit weak at first. And then as it, as it uh, continues, Barney expands what he's doing and it, and it starts to grow on me a little bit more. Um, the bass is also definitely pulsating and is very consistent on this track. Snare drum is being played with brushes, and we're getting that sort of classic washy sound we've grown accustomed to loving here. The saxophone has a first solo. Barney Whelan takes two choruses. He has a nice sound, performs great lines. There's some moments that remind me of Stan Getz, others that remind me of Johnny Griffin. There's some tremendous bop playing and bop expressions, some top bop, if you will. <laughs> and then there's a transition that uses uh chordal movement it's sort of moving in minor thirds like in a diminished fashion moving upwards in minor thirds and it's used as a as a solo transition uh a couple of times here going from the saxophone solo into a guitar solo i want us to listen to that together because i'm not exactly 100 percent uh digging what's going on it's not bad but we'll talk about it after we listen yeah it just feels it's like that is definitely I don't know. It's like an influence that doesn't come from from jazz necessarily. It's definitely different and unique. So I do appreciate it for that, for the different approach. I don't know if it necessarily fits the tune all that well, but it, right. it is different. It, it To me, it slightly interrupts the groove. I mean, it sort of bottoms out. It's like we were kind of, you know, we were getting that corno pulse. We, we were kind of swinging and and we were getting Barney Whelan doing his thing. And then that just suddenly sort of just like a stoplight um, on, a, on a stretch of road where there aren't any other stoplights. It just <laughs> sort of comes in and it's you have to stop for two minutes for nobody. Uh, it's, uh, it's, a, <laughs> it's a moment that reminds me of that. It's like, why am I stopping at this red light? Why is this red light here? Uh, and so that's what this transition Reminds me of it, it's not quite it's not quite in the pocket for me. I I dig what the the drummer is doing, Connie K on the on the cymbals, right? He's keeping the pulse going. If you listen to the way he's playing the cymbal, that's what's keeping it all together for me. And I think that the, they do this twice on this on this tune. And the second time they do it, it's it's much more effective. Where you get some John Lewis improvisation on top of what's going on. But this first time it happens, I'm like, what is going on? We we bottomed out. We sort of just took a took a uh, an exit we weren't supposed to, or we're at a stoplight that is meaningless. And why are why are we stopping here? I just don't don't get this this first one. It, it's just not pulled off as well as in the second one. 
I love when Max goes on his tangential imagery <laughs> and like explains the music in a way that's like so foundational. Like anyone can understand that feeling. That's like, oh man, Max, I almost cried laughing when you said you're at a stoplight in the middle of nowhere that doesn't need to be there. That's oh. exactly what that th- that is to me. I'm sorry. No, no, I, I definitely it's it's just that's a that's a an interesting way to put it, and it's just like a way that kind of is relatable to to so many people. But I definitely see exactly. what you're saying there, and I love the way. Although, like I like I said, I don't know if it fits necessarily. It's unique. It's different. I do love the way that John Lewis plays over the transition, and it makes makes it feel more in the pocket. It makes me question if like that's the way that John Lewis envisioned the transition. And then it didn't because he's the one who wrote the song, arranged the song. So it seems like maybe the first time it just didn't didn't click because it like John Lewis wasn't playing over it. But then when John Lewis played over it, it feels like it made a little bit more sense the the second time through. Right, right. So I I agree one hundred percent with the second time, but this first time is is not it for me. Um, and it transitions to the guitar solo, uh, and we get some good stuff from Sasha on this one. Yeah, one thing I want to do a little imagery myself is if the first time, if it's a red light in the middle of nowhere that you're waiting at for two minutes, I feel like the second time with John Lewis, it's just the speed limit changing down from 55 to 35, and you're just slowly cruising through until you get back up to 55. So not a not a stoplight the second time, just a little cruising through a speed limit zone. Well done, Dwayne. That's a good... <laughs> I'm, you just see, now to, you're... I'm just trying to be like you, Max. You know, I'm trying to get incorporated into my my analysis here. See, you're catching on. Yeah. It's been 22 episodes, and now you're starting <laughs> to catch it. <laughs> I just gotta think. Don't think in terms of notes or numbers. You gotta think in terms of roads, life. roads and bridges. Yeah, exactly. Life, life is a journey, just like jazz is a journey. If a good solo is a good solo, it's because it's taking you somewhere. You're going on a journey with it. And then when you go on to a solo transition idea like like this one, uh, you know, you're you're just you're interrupted, and it's like a it's like somebody bumped into you. Also, if you're at the you know at the the city market or something, and you're you're getting bananas, and then somebody's blocking the bananas. You're like, excuse me, I need to get those bananas. So that's (laughs) what I'm getting here. Max can't help himself. He literally cannot (laughs) help himself. I'm doing, yeah, I have a lot of images. So yeah, not not, not just those two. So uh, more to come. Uh, And then this Sasha guitar solo, a lot of nice bop here, double time lines galore as well. Some moments remind me of Grant Green also. And then the drums go back to using brushes as well behind the guitar solo when he was just using the sticks behind the saxophone. And I think that matches the overall tone and approach of, of each uh, musician. So I appreciate the drums on this one and treating each soloist in a different way. That's very important in the development of jazz soloing um, when you're listening to a track like this. And then they do that minor third transition again. So this is the second time, uh, excuse me, where it, it, it comes across more effectively with john lewis blowing over it and then we get a key solo the drum kept the use of the brushes during the key solo there's nice space used at times in the piano solo great development of shorter themes john lewis plays as he improvises i want us to listen to a moment of that because this is just very well done development here from pianist john lewis (laughs) 
Mm. Yeah, that's very straight ahead bop kind of Bud Powell reminiscent playing there. Yeah, and start, and part of it is it's as if he's creating melodies rather than improvising in a classic, predictable bop fashion. He's sort of in the moment creating ideas, and then um, it's very melodic. I think a lot of John Lewis's playing is melodic. And there are moments there where, where his swing feel is a little just tad bit of Ricky Tiki. Um, <laughs> I I don't know how else to put it. I mean, other uh, not in general overall, just there are certain moments there where, where it's not quite as swinging as, as uh, consistently as Barney Whelan is. But it's always interesting to listen to. And I think John Lewis is a very, very creative player, um, as evidenced by this solo and that snippet. We also get a bass solo on this. That's much appreciated. It's sort of eighth note galore from the bass. We get some quarter note pulse chumming or chunking from Sasha Distel, which reminds me of the great Freddie Green from the Count Basie Orchestra and the quarter note pulse style of swing guitar that was prevalent in the All-American Rhythm section of the Count Basie Orchestra and of that particular style. And so Sasha does that during the bass solo here. Well done on that. Um, and then John Lewis comes back with the head while Barney is adding improvisatory interplay between the melody uh, phrasing, uh, which creates for a nice arrangement. It sort of reminds me of West Coast playing or cats like Jerry Mulligan um, and how they would arrange certain standards. So another arranging technique that's a little unexpected and very well done here. They end with a slight slowdown and a final chord from the rhythm section. It's nothing fancy, but it's very clean and very well done. Yeah, and I feel like that's the ending of pretty much all of these tunes. We're going to kind of say the same thing about it. It's nothing fancy, but it's it's clean. And so they're all pretty similar in that fashion. Well, let's get into the fourth track on the album. And I just want to remind everyone at this point, I'm assuming this is the flip side, the B side of the LP. Now, instead of Connie K and Pierre, we have... Um, oh my God, I just blanked completely. We have Percy <laughs> Heath and yeah. kenny clark I, those names just like names no names my mind was blank for a second blackness everywhere nothingness okay but so <laughs> we get percy heath and kenny clark on the last three tracks on this album starting with the track the fourth track all the things you are which is another standard very well known well recorded track we actually did this track on our album um Live, jazz at massey hall live at massey oh. hall yep yeah, yeah. jazz at massey, jazz hall, at massey hall does it yeah so um there's and that's one of bird some of bird's renditions of it are some of the most most famous renditions of this tune um just a bop bop standard um through and through and this one it feels like there's really really some some of that classical piano influence on john lewis's treatment of the head another head that's not the full band just featuring kind of one player at a time instead of doing like the full band head. And then one thing that kind of sticks out to me is Barney Whelan comes in hot and heavy wheeling and dealing like Max said, which just, <laughs> it seems to be his approach. I don't know if it's because he's pretty young and he's still like, you know, I just got that fire, that intensity. Um, but he just comes in hot. I mean, it's what he does on every every solo. He comes in just like in your face, ready to go. And I just love his pickup that leads into his solo. I think it's super tasteful. Reminds me of some some really swinging cats, some Sonny Stitt or Sonny Rollins s cats who just you know super swinging good bop players. 
And his playing is just so surprisingly swinging. And I don't say surprisingly just because, like, I say it because I just didn't know a lot about him before this. And the name, I was just like, okay, I've seen that name before, but I've never really checked him out. So for a guy who I've never really heard of all that well to swing this hard, is just there's there's something surprising to that. And some of his playing really reminds me of some some really really swing heavy cats like Gene Ammons, a guy that Max and I both really like. So I want to check out uh, a portion of his solo here where he, he really, really reminds me of the likes of Gene Ammons. So let's check out this, this portion of his, his solo here. Bam. Yeah, just those lines. They're so swing. It's just, man, it just reminds me of, of Gene Ammons, the way he's playing those lines so much there. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, there's a jug connection there. I mean, a lot. you could think of a lot of cats. You could think of some, Sonny Rollins. You could think of Johnny Griffin. I mean, so many names come to mind. But yeah, Barney Whelan is a pleasant surprise here. And I, uh, I really enjoy the way he comes in hot, like you put it, into his solo. It changes the mood of the tune very effectively. It adds movement and it in a continuum to the groove and musical atmosphere. And it just sort of develops and ultimately adds to the overall color of the, the music that we're getting. And, and it just, it puts a smile on my face. I mean, this is some of what we're missing today in moments in current jazz recording. Yeah. And I feel like one thing that Max said, it switches the, the kind of feel it feels like anytime, no matter what's going on in the album, no matter how the, the head or the melody is arranged, when Barney Whelan comes in, we are swinging. So anytime he comes in, <laughs> yeah. it's going to be swinging. So that's, you know, you can't help but but to switch the feel up when Barney's playing. And I love that. I mean, that is just, that is, that is how you play. You know what I mean? It's, I, 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 I'm not going to say there's one way to play because that's not true, but this is certainly something worth appreciating and I, and I love the spirit that Barney gives us yeah and it does feel honestly like it's becoming I mean we've kind of we got into a lot of more modern albums over the past few weeks it feels like it, it is becoming a bit of a, a lost art and people are kind of going away from this like heavy swinging approach I mean we see guys like Joshua Redman whose sound has definitely changed a little bit to a more lighter reserved approach than his like previous kind of more heavy heavy swinging approach so yeah it's just refreshing sometimes to hear this and I, I I know that you know like Max said there's not just one way to play and we appreciate all kinds of playing and I I appreciate Josh's playing now but it's just kind of refreshing in my opinion to get some of this just like heavy hitting swing that's just it's swinging hard and that's why we love jazz music I mean it's that's what it's about you know so um, really cool to get that here from, from Barney. And then, um, Sasha takes the next solo and he only takes one chorus, but there's some really nice lines and some good feel there, but not a, a super long solo from, from Sasha. And then John Lewis's solo, another great example of him using space really well. And then the whole group starts to swing a little bit harder towards the end of his solo and into this drum and piano trade section. And I think this section is actually really cool. Um, Clark 
continues to play during like the mo- the rhythmic and mostly chordal ideas of John Lewis and then he kind of plays off of those ideas when he takes his his turns during this this trading section so i want to listen to kind of the end of the solo and how they start to swing a little bit harder into this section this trade section and get a feel for the trade section itself so let's listen to a bit of 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 that going on here on this track and I love a good trading between drums and another rhythm section player. You don't have to always trade fours or eights with every single player in the ensemble. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, the way they do it here is definitely unique and pretty cool. So let's get a, a listen for it here. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, so that's kind of the the essence of, of that trade section. Kind of reminds me of uh, some kind of more gospel-y, shout chorus, Milt Buckner kind of stuff um, with how John Lewis is, is approaching that there and kind of the, the feel that we're getting there. Yeah, it's almost like he's he's not necessarily soloing per se. He's just sort of making a, a almost shout chorus idea and then going back and forth with the drums. Yeah, so that's cool. That's just super musical. It's fun. It's interactive. Um, so that's a that's a cool section and a cool arrangement arrangement aspect of, of this tune. And then once again, they they end with the piano once through the the main melody idea, a bit of a retardando at the end. It's nothing super fancy um, or anything at the end, but it's also not bad. So kind of the same sentiment that Max said on on the last track here on on all the things you are. And for some reason, it is bugging me that there's no saxophone on that ending. I don't know why. I, it's just a personal grievance of mine that will never be um, addressed adequately. So I, I don't know what it is. It, it's not like they're doing anything wrong, and they have legitimate musical reasons as to why they're doing it that way. And I think that's the way John Lewis wanted to do it. And he's John Lewis. I have nothing to say against it. I'm just... Uh, I just want some saxophone at the end. Is that too much to ask for? Max always wants a little more saxophone. If there's a saxophone <laughs> on the song and there's no saxophone solo, that's an issue. If there's a saxophone on the the album and they're not in the ending, issue. So it, I feel like this might be, I mean, I, I understand what Max is saying, but I mean, if you look at the instrument that's five feet away from him, that looks like a saxophone to me. So it might be a, a little bit of a, a personal bias, but it's, I mean, it's still his opinion, you know, so we can't discredit Max for that. Thank you, Dwayne. I <laughs> appreciate the support. <laughs> yeah. I just have to, I have to point out the the potential personal biases that might, might come into play with those opinions. So yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Then we get, <laughs> uh, <laughs> then we get a great fifth track on the album. Bag's Groove. This is a jazz blues, a jazz composition from vibraphonist Milt Jackson. His nickname was Bags, and so that's where we get Bag's Groove. It's a 12-bar blues, usually played in F, unless you're really cool like Oscar Peterson, then you do it in the key of G. Um, so I like to do it in G because Oscar did it in G. Yeah. But you know, but they're doing it in F, I'm pretty sure, here, and that's typically what you do. You do Bag's Groove in, in the key of F. Here, the head melody is also arranged. It's played by both the saxophone and the guitar without a designated quarter note pulse from the bass. 
being played alongside them. Yet the tempo is very evident from the playing of the melody, and the drums are also having some fun behind the head, and the bass chimes in every two to four bars or so. And I want us to listen to how they perform this melody together. Um, it's definitely hip, and it's very unique. I love, every, yeah, I love everything that Kenny Clark is doing on that hi hat. Yes, yes, give me more. That's, <laughs> <laughs> I'm ever. You obviously can't see us, but while we're listening to that, I'm I'm uh, emulating Kenny Clark on the hi hat with my my pointer fingers. So definitely a very good rendition for myself there. But it's just it's it's so hip. It's hard not to be into that. I also love the the syncopated feel that Percy Heath gives us on on the bass here. It's just such a cool way to do this head. It's so, so interesting. It is. It is. And it's kind of grooving, too, in its own way. And then we get the quarter note pulse when the uh, solos come in. We get that typical straight-ahead jazz blues approach we would expect when the solo section starts. The guitar solos first. He uses a lot of short themes, bop blues lines, some bird licks definitely used here from Sasha Distel. I want us to listen to just a little snippet of that together. And again, I'm I'm pleasantly surprised by the use of bop in Sasha's playing. It's it, what we're going to listen to is a perfect example of bop lines that are directly derived from the likes of Charlie Yardbird Parker. <laughs> Yeah, if there were a bird workbook, that's like... That's uh, in there. That's right in there. Yeah. It also seems like he generally plays around with the rhythm and thematic phrasing in the first eight bars of the form. And then Sasha will go into bop for about bars about uh, eight through 11 or so. And then he'll end with a more in-the-pocket rhythmic or swinging idea that moves well into the next chorus. So there's sort of a um, an apparent... Um, formula for the way Sasha is approaching the solo. So that's something for you to check out when you're listening to it. The piano solo is next after Sasha. There's some great linear movement and cool uses of bop ideas here too. And I especially enjoy his last chorus of the solo. Um, and when you listen to this chorus, I want you to pay attention for when he plays an idea in the fifth bar, and then he'll repeat it in a number of different ways, moving it around. So in more thematic development, more in the moment creation and development from John Lewis here. And then we get Barney Whelan on the saxophone solo next. He starts later in the form around the third bar. So the tail end of the piano solo bleeds into the first course of the sax solo. It's a nice change of pace for the transition of the soloist um, torch, you know, moving from one soloist to the next. It's okay to bleed into the next player's chorus a little bit. And it's a nice handing off of the baton when you're moving from one solo to the next. There's a lot of fun and swing in the solo. Some moments remind me a bit of Sonny Rollins 
particularly his solo on Tender Madness and the phrasing of some of his ideas and the precision, precision, uh, that's hard to say, the precision. <laughs> The precise movement of chromaticism that he'll play. And I also get some Paul Gonzalez vibes at times, as well as the great Dexter Gordon. The bass solo here is also very nice. This one from, we said, Percy Heath. His phrasing is a bit more interesting and musical during this solo when compared to another bass solo on the record earlier by Pierre. I think Percy Heath's time feel is slightly more in the pocket and swings a bit more effortlessly, which is evidence, uh, sorry, which is evident in the smoothness of his eighth note lines. So I want us to listen to that together. A moment from the bass solo from Percy Heath, 435 to 449. <laughs> Yeah, I just feel like we're getting, in my personal opinion, we're just getting more from from Percy Heath than we were getting from Pierre Michelet. It's not that anything Pierre was doing was bad, necessarily. I just feel like we're getting some more interesting playing, especially on that solo. Um, just a little bit more from, from Percy Heath. And Percy's, Percy's uh, eighth note feel, swing feel, is a little more in the pocket. Mm -hmm. um, he's emphasizing more along the, the, the right um, parts in the groove that you would when you are playing eighth note lines in a swing style, you know, with a swing feel. So so per Percy's, I just think, overall feel is a little bit more in the pocket than Pierre's. Not to knock what Pierre was doing because his playing is also very well um, performed and on point, but we just get slightly more in the pocket motion from Percy Heath. And then there's some trading of fours between the bass and the drums. It's a nice touch here. Reminded me of the last track where we got trading behind, or sorry, between the piano and the drums. Um, here, Kenny Clark has some nice dynamic control during this trading, which matches the musical moment since he's trading with bass, a more naturally softer dynamic output. So great trading here. The sax and guitar are back in from the head out with the bass solidifying a nice pocket too. Yeah, I just feel, to go back a little bit, I just feel like also Kenny Clark is maybe giving us a little bit more than than Connie Kay in certain moments too. And kind of this, uh, this trading section is kind of an example of that, in my opinion. I think you're right. I think Kenny Clark... Um, again, is just another example of of him being a slightly more in the pocket, um, precise player than Connie K, or at least with what we're given here. I mean, Connie K is also well known in this history of the music, and and Kenny Clark is too. I just think you're right. There's there's a little bit more dynamic movement from Kenny Clark here um, during this trading section, um, and then again the sax guitar back in. Um, there's some fun hi-hat hits from the drums again in a final chord to end it. Those hi-hat hits are another example of what you're getting at, that Kenny Clark is just a little bit more interesting to listen to at moments. And again, I would have appreciated a few final touches from the saxophone on top of the final chord, but um, that's okay. Uh, that's okay. I mean, that, I'll just have to deal with it and move on. 
You wrote something there, Max. You got. Uh, you can say what you wrote there. I mean, I just. Uh... <laughs> no, you don't have to. You don't have to. If there's one thing we've learned about this, um, Max, if you are writing a tune, just make sure if the end, if the whole tune sucks, it can suck <laughs> as long as it's got a good ending. And Max will at least say, "Well, at least it had a good ending." Because if you write the best tune ever with a a crap ending, you're gonna Max is gonna let you know. So. Well, basically what happens is Barney Whelan just holds out a nice sounding tone and it's like, okay, Barney, fine. Just play one note and drift away <laughs> into the sunset. That's but what Max has written. I wanted yeah. him to say it because he wasn't going to say it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't want to go hard too much, but it's just like, what? why not add something there? What What is this whole... What we we gotta just we gotta just play one note. We just gotta play one tone, and then and then it'll just just stop. And then I I don't I don't get it. It's it's just something I wouldn't do. At least uh, not on every tune. Or you know, at, at least the saxophone is present on the final chord here. I mean, that's appreciated. So so at least we got that. But I I just I don't understand. It's like we're just gonna play one note, and then it just drifts away, and um. I, I I like that at certain times, but here I just wanted a little bit more. Yeah, if you if Max uh, if Max can give you the go ahead on an ending that you've written, you know you've done something because it's it, it sometimes <laughs> takes a little bit to get Max to to give the uh, the ending the okay. Um, but no, I do agree that the endings on this it seems like there's not as much, and we get this a lot. And I think it's it is a fair point that Max uh, Max makes is a lot of times we get like these super cool tracks, and then we just get endings that are just not as thought out as the rest of the track. And it's like, why why don't we think about the ending as much as we're thinking about the the middle section or the solo section or the head or you know the intro even? So yeah, I do I do see where Max is coming from. The endings we gotta give some love to the endings, people. Yeah, I, I I don't know what it is. It's a personal pet peeve of mine, I guess. And it's not like I do anything when I'm playing on a gig. It's not like my endings are super, uh, you know, I I don't know, out there or anything. I mean, I do like to to write it out. You know, we'll do the three six two five write out and and have some fun with it, or we'll do uh, or we'll quote a, a lick from another tune, or you know, I like to end in an interesting and fun way. And to me, there are certain endings here that are just not that fun to me. And I'm wondering why. I mean, you don't have to be fun every moment of every song, but but why not? I don't know. If you're not, Max will be like, boring. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But no, I definitely, I definitely, I have similar feelings. It's just fun to poke fun at Max for his, uh, his um, stickler on the, on the endings of, of tunes. So yeah, I'll just have to get over it. No, I like it. We'll we'll keep it going. Um, It's definitely something that I get to make fun of. So I'd I'd hate for you to stop doing it. Then I'd have I'd be so bored over here. So. um, All right. Then I'll then I'll keep being my merry self. Thank you, Max. That's all we can ask for. (laughs) Let's get let's get Mary right into the the, the final track on the album, which is another standard, a great standard um, entitled Willow Weep for Me. Um, It's a popular song composed in 1932 by Anne Rennell who also wrote the lyrics for the song as well. It's an A-A-B-A form, and it's written in 4-4, but has sometimes been adapted into 3-4, you know, a waltz feel. So we get that sometimes on this tune. And one account of the inspiration for the song is that during her time at Radcliffe College, Rennell had been struck by the loveliness of the willow trees on campus. And 
this simple observation became the subject of of the this intricate song. And at first, the song was rejected by publishers for several reasons. Um, first, that the song was dedicated to George Gershwin, and which is kind of weird. I guess at the time, a dedication to another writer was disapproved. Um, so the the first person presented with the song for publication was uh, Saul Bornstein, who passed it along to Irvin Berlin, who we've talked about on this album, who accepted the song at that point. Other reasons stated for its slow acceptance are that it was written by a woman, which we can definitely understand. We've seen some of that happen, and we've kind of talked about that, and definitely have talked about um, Terry Lynn Carrington kind of highlighting women's compositions Uh in recent days as it's not always been done in jazz. So another potential reason why it wasn't, you know, published at first. And then another reason is that um, its construction was kind of unusually complex for a composition that was targeted at a commercial audience, which is just like a kind of as a crappy reason, in my opinion, to not publish a song. It's like, Oh, they can't understand it. Um, So it's like, I don't know. There are people who, who will appreciate it. Yeah, I love the bridge on that tune. I, I played this song. It's a great one. Um, ours, also, Art Tatum's version is is very well known. I mean, it's one of those tunes that um, that is covered pretty often. There's another uh, on one of my favorite records ever. Um, Jug Holmes, or sorry, Jug, uh, Gene Ammons, and Groove Holmes do it on yeah. one of their live recordings, and it's just it's so good such a great song so so many good versions of this song and this one is is definitely one of them um it starts surprisingly i mean enough with a piano intro i'm just kidding um so it starts with this piano intro that it just really focuses around kind of the the main idea in the melody and then it kind of fleshes it out a little bit more um when they get when it gets to like the bridge chords on this one but it's like this kind of one time through the form piano rubato intro that's pretty well done and it's this is what john lewis is just really good at is this this kind of inso intro so we're getting the full john lewis feel and effect here and then the rhythm section kind of sets in the groove which has a two feel to it in the a section but i'd still say it's four four um because the swing feel on the bridge is definitely in four and we've kind of talked about this before. You can call it whatever you want or however you hear it. Um, two, four, it doesn't matter. You can say it starts in two, four, and then the bridge is in four, four. But to me, it's it's a four, four tune with kind of a two feel in the way that they're playing it. Um, yeah, uh, they're emphasizing, especially from bass and drums, beats one and three, if you think about typical four, four, just yeah. a little bit harder than you normally would in a swing fashion. And so to me, it seems like they're in two, four because they're going one, two, one, two, mm-hmm. you know, that one is really emphasized, which is a little bit unexpected. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, that's just like all a matter of like perception, how you perceive the beat, like, cause in jazz, like Max said, you normally would get the emphasis on the two and the four, but here they're really doing it on one and three. And who's to say that they're not just messing, you know, changing the feel versus, okay, it is in two, but it definitely has a two feel to it, which we get a lot of times in jazz. We've talked about that with other tunes. Um, I think notably when we did something else, some of those songs definitely have some some two feels in the A sections on the head. So same kind of thing here and definitely the swing in four feel on the bridge for sure. And then Sasha Distal really shines to me on this track, maybe more so than any other track on the album. He takes the melody and the first solo. I love his kind of 
laid back reserved nature on the melody before really kind of opening up as solo to me it feels like he's really getting at the essence of this tune and kind of we talked about the nature of this tune was um Anne Rennell she was just walking through campus and appreciating the the trees and I feel like that's kind of the the same vibe we get from from Sasha here is that kind of just laid back strolling vibe it's not you know anything two in your face but then when he gets into a solo it's just it's really nice from him on a solo his tone is really nice um and it's well displayed on the bridge especially during the melody here and then we get some some really nice brushwork from kenny clark during the melody which which i like as well and then one thing that really stands out to me about sasha's solo is his phrasing we've talked about barney whelan's uh phrasing a little bit but Sasha Distel's phrasing as well is really really good it's near perfection on this solo in the way that he phrases his lines he has a really good mix of ideas blues drenched bop oriented and some feel-good motifs I want to get a feel for kind of all of this how he phrases all these different ideas super well and so let's let's listen to a, a section of of um Sasha Distel's solo here on Willow Weep for Me. Yeah. I love what he's doing there. It feels so good too, the way the rhythm section is accompanying his solo. Um, and, you know, it's all together. Everyone's listening. There's movement. I think this is a great track overall. It's well arranged, great soloing. Barney Whelan gives us some nice stuff right after that, too. Yeah, for sure. So let's, yeah, let's get into to Barney Whelan. I mean, just, I can't say it enough, just such a soulful, commanding presence from, from Barney. And I love how he kind of gets into some more soul and blues driven ideas in this solo. There's some really nice dynamics throughout the solo, not only from Barney, but from the rest of the rhythm section as well. I really feel like Kenny Clark and, and Percy Heath are giving us a lot um, here. So let's listen to a section where just Barney kind of, he surprises me again with his use of dynamics here. Um, we're going to listen to a, a section here and we'll talk about it afterwards. Man, he's just that is killing. He's just simmering. He's simmering, right? And then he holds out that note with the vibrato, and then bam, like bam. <laughs> yeah. Oh my! The first time I heard that, I was like, "Whoa, what the heck?" Oh man, it's so good. It's just, it's so swinging from him, and that's just so such good dynamics. And you can hear the rhythm section kind of follow him and and swing a little bit harder, a little deeper when when he kind of gets gets a little you know louder in those dynamics so really really cool there um max did you have anything that you wanted to say about about his solo or about his playing on this track 
it is so musically appropriate to what's going on and what this song is. I mean, there's an influence of the blues in, in what's going on here. And I think that's the right way to do it. Again, you don't have to think about it that way. There's not necessarily one right way to play Willow Weep for me, but this is certainly a good way to do it. And, and I love the movement of what Barney is doing. There's ebb and flow to everything he's playing. There's um, in the pocket motion, of course, it feels good. Of course, um, you can feel it. There's an emphasis on soul and what he's doing, but also it's technically uh, appealing and impressive as well. So we're getting a lot from Barney Whelan and, and everything he does, especially on Willowy for me, is musically appropriate and um, always catching me. And, you know, you know, I, I, I can't not listen when that is playing when he's you know during that especially that moment in the solo and others as well it's like i'm enamored with every note and every idea that he's giving yeah for sure i it's like yeah such a pleasant surprise on this album and so i'm super thankful to our listener for recommending this because i'm like man i didn't know much about barney but i definitely do now absolutely and then the head out is kind of a um a piano cadenza style and it's really really nice playing awesome playing from uh from john lewis it's very colorful through this section and max i want to ask you just to explain to the listeners what do i mean when i say the word colorful here from from john lewis well there's a lot of different things you could you could be saying or emphasis or um sort of alluding to there I mean, number one is when we think about the blues, I mean, blue is a color and there's there's certain blue notes and blues ideas and blues inflections that we can play um, when we're soloing and improvising and, and doing condenses and things like that. So those ideas are kind of a, a blue color. But really, you know, if you just think about different harmonies and the different ways um, we, we can put certain notes together and different things we can do when we're uh, creating harmonic ideas and creating um, sort of short motifs and different ideas. Um, those can produce a sort of, uh, you know, a sound can produce, you know, there's, I don't know what it's called, but there is a thing where, you know, people, if they close their eyes, they can see a certain color when they listen to a certain sound played musically on the piano or a chordal instrument. I think it's called synesthesia is what it's called. That sounds right. Something like that. Synest yeah, synesthesia or something. Let me let so me that, look that up to make sure that's what so it that's, is. Yeah, that's one direct uh connection you you could be getting at is, you know, certain sounds do actually create colors some people can see colors when they listen to a certain um either note or harmony and so that that kind of adds to what's going on too yeah that it is this synesthesia um yeah it's like the association association of numbers and colors with with um sounds so yeah yeah and also you know when you have different chordal extensions you know when you do sharp nine versus flat 13 versus yeah. Um, you know, uh, triton sub, th those are different colors. You're getting different sounds and they're, they're, they're performing a musical, um, occurrence. You know, there's a reason, there's a harmonic reason why it fits, but it's also branching out everything that you're doing musically and how you're performing a certain piece or cadenza or part of a song. And so 
you're 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 expanding the color palette of what's going on. Yep, that's a. I think Max hit the nail so far on the head. I mean, he went into a more like expansive answer than I was even thinking. Um, that that's really great. Yeah, there's many ways that we can think of color and music and the ways that it, that it applies. Um, a lot of times when talking about pianists, when we say colorful. Max hit it right on the head there is the use of so say I play a, a major chord and I could play it one three five right and that's just the most basic first inversion way to play a major chord but then when we start adding things on top of it the the you, and you can hear this um you know in if you listen to someone or if you're able to do this if you start adding things you know different um extensions to the chord like flat nines or sharp 11s, anything, even making it a dominant chord or, you know, using a major seven instead of a dominant seven, that adds color to the same chord. So the same chord, a G major chord, we can add all kinds of different color to that chord by changing the extensions, you know, on the chord and making it a dominant seven, making it a major seven. Those have very different, those make you feel very different ways. They color, they're very colorful in different ways. So that's, that's, you know, um, one way to think about it and kind of while I was getting at, but Max brought in some some other great examples of of the way that music can be colorful and the what I'm saying there. Right. You can play a major chord a lot of different ways. You can do one, three, five, then you could add in the major seven, then you could add in the nine on top of the major seven, then you could add on the six on top of the nine on top of the major seven, and then you could add in the sharp eleven on top of the six on top of the nine on top of the major seven, and so forth and so on. And so yeah, those will sound um in their own way, uh, they're they're creating sort of their own color or their own identity in the same sound. Even though it's all just a major chord, you can add to it and add that color. Yeah, and so with John Lewis, that's something that he does super well is the use of those different extensions and adding different extensions to kind of give, you know, you could play Mary Had a Little Lamb in like the most rudimentary way, but you can also listen to someone who's, you know, super talented, like a guy like Jacob Collier, who's really good at harm harmony and things like that, play it in a way that's sounds completely different he can add different extensions and make it sound so many different ways so john lewis is is a master of that in my opinion like that colorful style of playing and and adding the different extensions to the chords so that's definitely what we're getting here and i think this is a actually a cool ending on this one and this is just such an awesome um version of this tune and closer to the album I think it's really well done, and I think it's very musically expressive because of all the different colors that we're getting. The arrangement is on point to me. I love the the slight, subtle changes in feel. We get a lot from solos here. Um, all in all, it's the most musically expressive track on the album, and this concludes the uh, the tunes. This is the last track on the record, and I think this is a great final track to the album. Yeah, for sure. I think this is and it's a yeah, it's a great way to end the album. We really get a lot from from Sasha Dis, Distel on this one, so just really cool in in so many ways. But so that wraps up our kind of analysis of the album itself. What we're gonna do next is get into our top threes and our not so hot tracks for this album before getting into our overall album thoughts and our rating for this album. So Max, why don't you hit us with your your top three and your not so hot for this album? 
All right, my number one is Willow Weep for me, that last track. There's so much there. All the color you were getting at. Great Barney Whelan solo. I love the arrangement, too. The great piano intro and outro. So much there to enjoy. That's my obvious number one to me. Number two is Bag's Groove. I love the blues. I love the arrangement of the head on that one. Um, there's some great blues playing as well number three is dear old stockholm i cannot get enough of barney whelan solo on dear old stockholm and so to me that is my number three the not so hot is unfortunately the title track of the album afternoon in paris mm. again there's that weird stoplight in the journey where we get that solo transition that um works half the time and there are i mean it, it holds it together it just sort of bottoms out and it, it creates a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth, at least the first time it occurs. Um, and I think we just get a lot more from other tracks on this record. Um, so so Afternoon in Paris is unfortunately the pick for my Not So Hot. Yeah, I, I definitely have some similar sentiments for my top three, but a little bit different. Um, I have All the Things You Are as my number one track. Notably, it wasn't on Max's top three at all. But I think I personally have a, a little bit of a bias towards this track. I really love this composition, um, the tune, all the things you are in general. But in their their uh, arrangement of it and their playing, Barney Whelan on this track is killing. I love his swing approach on it. Um, so that's my number one track on the album. And then I definitely think Willow Weep for me is just stands out um, as well. The arrangement uh, Sasha Distel's playing on this one is, is really good. Um, so he kind of is featured a little bit there and I really enjoyed that. And then I have the tune bags groove as my, my third in my top three. And just a lot of the same reasons Max said, and just the arrangement, the head is so cool. It's so hip. I definitely enjoyed dear old Stockholm. I thought about playing in my top three, but I think it's, it's kind of interesting to note that every single one in my top three are the ones with the latter rhythm section that features Kenny Clark and Percy Heath. I didn't do that intentionally, but that's just, that's what I was digging more. So am I not so hot as well? Unfortunately is the title track afternoon in Paris. I just, it's not a bad track. I just feel like it doesn't give us as much as every other track on the album. And so that's why it's my not so hot. But cool, let's get into our overall album thoughts and ratings before we wrap up. I'll go ahead and go first. I think that Afternoon in Paris features some well-known American cats, as well as maybe introducing us to some French musicians that can really swing. Everyone knows names like John Lewis, Percy Heath, and Kenny Clark, but not as many American listeners have heard names like Sasha Distel, Barney Wheel and Barney Whelan. This album features an eclectic mix of standards while also featuring Lewis's Afternoon in Paris as the title track. The arrangement on the album brings us a sometimes different lens into the music with many piano intros and rubato sections and not all of the melodies being played in such a straight ahead fashion. This isn't to say that this album does not have certain swing and bop elements and is cert certainly featured well from all of the musicians on this album. They have memorable renditions of tunes such as All the Things You Are and Willow Weep for Me. One thing that makes these tracks may be more memorable than some of the earlier tunes on the album is the introduction of Percy Heath and Kenny Clark to the rhythm section that certainly stand out and do more to interest the listener than Pierre Michelet and Connie Kay. One of the members of the group that stands out above many, um, it 
many times in the recording is Barney Whelan. He continually stands out with his commanding, straightforward swing combined with the wealth of different ideas and lines. His feel is impeccable, and he reminds me of so many different greats all at the same time. Sonny Stitt, Dexter Gordon, Gene Ammons, and even others at, at different times. I feel like the the endings of tunes do not always seem as thought out as some of the rest of the the intros but none of them are particularly bad per se i'm also never the biggest fan of having a split rhythm section on albums where you have you know the one rhythm section on the a side and a different rhythm section on the b side but it happened quite often with the nature of jazz recording back in the day but in my opinion it can make certain albums feel slightly disjointed when you have a whole different rhythm section coming in so, but overall, I think Afternoon in Paris is an underappreciated and less than well-known album that has a lot going for it and truly is an interesting listen. It gives us a taste of some potentially unfamiliar European jazz musicians while featuring many standards in an interesting fashion. The biggest takeaway from this recording is the name Barney Whelan, a saxophonist whose work deserves a much deeper dive. This album is a non-mainstream recording that is more than worthy of a listen and your time. And for all of those reasons, I give it an 8.2 out of 10 is my rating. All right. I would agree with some some of those big points you made. I think John Lewis and Sasha Distel's Afternoon in Paris is a unique recording involving a collaborative creation between American and French musicians. They create an album filled with meaningful straight-ahead jazz that includes elements of other genres. The arrangements of most tunes here are interesting, too, which surmise a number of rubato piano intros, cool interplay between instruments, collective improvisation, solo trading, and intentional endings. Each soloist creates impactful improvisations when featured. I am most pleasantly surprised by Barney Whelan's saxophone playing. His ideas, feel, and phrasing are always swinging. Barney's sound and style are much appreciated as well. His solos on Dear Old Stockholm and Bag's Groove are particularly on point while filled with bop, blues, soul, and effortless dexterity. His solo on Willow Weep for me is another high point to the record, as that whole track is in top form. It is quite expressive as it has the most apparent journey from the start of the piano intro through solos and into the head out. The tune's blues tinge is clearly on display there too. Sasha's guitar is a nice addition to the ensemble, as can be heard on I Cover the Waterfront, Dear Old Stockholm, and Bag's Groove. His single line ideas are impressive as they are clearly influenced by the bop lineage, including the late great Charlie Parker. John Lewis has a certain distinct sound on the piano derived from his voicings and tendency to produce immaculate, easygoing ideas in the mid-range of the piano. Lewis and company are accompanied by an array of great rhythm section players, including drummer Connie Kay and bassist Pierre Michelot on tracks one through three, and bop drum legend Kenny Clark alongside bass extraordinaire Percy Heath of the Heath Brothers dynasty on tracks four through six. The latter rhythm section of Heath and Clark seems to swing just a tad harder, producing drive and feel-good movement throughout tunes. Great musical moments are present from everyone. Some points on the album are a bit puzzling. To me, this would describe the seeming collective improv between sax and bass on the opening track. It seems to sonically clutter the music. 
Another puzzler is the solo transition idea present in Afternoon in Paris. I appreciate those arrangement ideas, yet here it may almost disrupt the flow. Also, I wish there were not so many endings played by just the rhythm section. If Barney's saxophone is on the tune, why not include him on more endings? I suppose that specific arranging decision may be easier in the moment, and perhaps that is how John Lewis was hearing it. Despite these moments, I enjoy the arrangement of Willow Weep for Me and Bag's Groove. Those musical journeys are uniquely excellent. All in all, this is an interesting, swing-heavy album that should be given more attention. Musicians like Barney, Whelan, and Sasha Distel are not as immediately recognizable or as well-known as other prominent players. Afternoon in Paris would be a great place to familiarize yourself with them, as well as the style and ability of John Lewis, the notable pianist and composer-arranger of the modern jazz quartet. The tunes that are present on this album are timeless as are a number of the musicians. This is worth a listen, even if it's just to say you've done your homework. Overall score, 7.7 out of 10. Yeah, Max, I think you make some some really good points there. I think those are both really fair ratings for this album. Definitely one to check out if you've never listened to some of these cats. I know I was unfamiliar with, with some of them. So definitely cool to check out something that we maybe would have not checked out if it wasn't recommended to us by a listener. So please, if you have any albums like this that you're like, oh man, I wonder if these guys have have heard of this, definitely send it in. We love checking out new artists, new music. So really cool. Another thing you can send in is your response to our jazz question of the week, which is your most underrated album. Maybe it's one you also want us to check out. But so definitely enter in that to get... um, or. Give us an answer to that to get entered into our giveaway. We're going to be giving away an album of your choice. We'll give you some options. Um, but yeah, definitely DM us on Instagram or email us at the Gmail or sorry at the Jazz Jam Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, next week we're going to be getting into a new album, brand spanking new. This is by Lakeisha Benjamin. It just came out in January twenty seventh of last month of 2023 so less than a month old the album is entitled phoenix by lakeisha benjamin definitely one that max max recommended to me i'd heard lakeisha benjamin before she's played she played with alicia keys for like the longest time um but now this is her her solo work definitely a cool album to get into so that's what we're getting into next week max do you have any final thoughts before we we sign off today I just really dig what's going on in a lot of Lakeisha Benjamin's new record. And I think there's some key points to make about what she's delivering on the scene in the present moment that others are not. And so there's, there's, there's some great things to talk about. There's some other things that are also present on that album called Phoenix by Lakeisha that are a little interesting too. So a lot to get into next week. I'm looking forward to it. Please feel free to send in your answer to our jazz question of the week. We'd love to give away an album to you as an appreciation for your listening, for your engagement. We always, we always uh, are, are, are just not not only proud of what we're doing but um your your engagement with us really aids in our understanding of of different ways we could change what we're doing or 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 different ideas of what we could go over and and there's been a lot of interaction lately with our most recent episodes so we really thank you guys gals however you identify for listening um it it really is is i i don't know um 
it's great. And and we're going to keep doing our thing here. Yeah, yeah, great points there, Max. I'm super excited to get into this album next week. Um, a little bit different than some of the other modern stuff um, Lakeisha Benjamin gives us. So I just want to say, yeah, thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been an episode of the Jazz Jam Podcast.